So the topic of our meditation today is the meaning of love, according to St. Thomas Aquinas and the tradition that follows. And I thought that it would be a helpful way to organize our time to devote the first conference to love in a variety of forms, and then the second conference specifically to divine love. And we'll see, we'll, we'll establish a kind of analogy between or among them in such a way as to helpfully illumine what I think is most important. But to begin, I thought it'd be nice to, uh, to have a kind of sketch, something, a working principle in our mind, whereby to proceed. So many of you, I hope, or at least some perhaps, have read the book Brideshead Revisited. Brideshead Revisited is one of the great novels of Evelyn Waugh, who was voted, I think, by Time magazine as one of the 50 most influential female writers of the 20th century. <laughs> Which is funny, because he's a man. Right. So, um, he, by disposition, was a satirist. He was also kind of an angry man, um, which you might imagine is a kind of deadly combination. But he permits in two works his sincerity, his kind of authenticity, and his Catholic faith to pierce through, those being the Sword of Honor trilogy and then Brideshead Revisited. Brideshead is revisited, so therefore it's considered a classic. Um, it's shorter, that is to say. Okay. Um, so in Brideshead, the kind of basic, basic plot summary is that you have uh, two friends, Charles Ryder and Sebastian Flight. They meet at Oxford. They become fast friends. Charles is kind of serious and grave and unchurched. Sebastian pertains to an old Catholic family, uh, but he himself is supercilious and bizarre. So he has a pet teddy bear uh, whom he names Aloysius, and he dotes on him. And things like this just continue for the entire book. Um, but their friendship ultimately implicates Charles in the life of Sebastian's family. Um, so the flight family, uh, the Marchman house, as it were. And as a result, Charles is invited over for holidays or for vacations or for breaks or for whatever. And he comes to know the members of the family and they become more and more implicated in his life. So um, eventually, Charles and Sebastian kind of go different ways. Sebastian struggles with alcoholism, and that proves decisive for his family, and he's kind of excommunicated. <clears throat> but then Charles falls in love with Sebastian's sister, Julia, and then they have an amorous relationship, both of whom are married at the time to other people, uh, but then it comes to this climax. And, and all along the way, you encounter these different characters, each of whom has different loves at work in his or her life. So, Lord Marchman, the father of the house, has been estranged from the family. So he lives in, in Venice with his mistress. But he has this kind of bizarre love and hatred of his wife, both operative in his heart, uh, and a kind of love and contempt for his mistress. So already you're seeing the complexity of love at work uh, in the family. And then you have Lady Marchman, who's very solicitous for her children's good. But you have the distinct impression the entire time that she loves what they could be but finds it difficult to acknowledge what they are, which her children find oppressive and burdensome. And then you have the oldest brother, Bridie, who has a kind of love of the faith, but you can recognize it as perhaps a bit um, stuffy. He's accused of being Jesuitical throughout the entire book. <laughs> and then you have the youngest daughter, Cordelia, who's very dear. You think at first naive, but you come to find that's not the case. So she's just very precious and very loving and one of the most solid citizens of the entire story. And of course there's Sebastian, who has a tortured relationship with his family, and then Julia, who's the most normal, I suppose, but she herself is really at the heart of the book's climax. 
I bring this up because the thematic of the novel is going to be a thematic for these two conferences, namely to show that love is intertwined. Love is intertwined. So friendship with romance, romance with charity, charity with friendship, all of them are mutually enriching. And what we come to find is that the grandeur and the poverty of human love somehow gesture towards divine love. I don't say that to be merely paradoxical in a kind of Chestertonian vein, but it's truly that at the heights of human love, therein the characters experience a kind of desolation, and that leads them to something further up and further in. So, just to kind of bring this uh, opening gambit to its conclusion, the members of the family each have a kind of reckoning at the end of the book, and it starts with Lord Marchman's failing health. So he returns to Brideshead, he returns to England to die in his ancestral home. And at this point, Bridey has given up his Jesuitical aspirations, and he himself has gotten married to a woman that the family finds detestable. And Lord Marchman comes, finds his son in this marriage, and is appalled, and he disinherits him. So he names Julia as the heir to his estate. And for him, this is all tumultuous, but at the end he has a kind of serene passing, and he receives the sacraments, and it's perhaps the climax of the book to see him make the sign of the cross when he is absolved and then receives anointing. Now, this has a kind of cascading effect in the lives of his family members, because Julia is touched by his act of disinheriting Bridie and then naming her the heir to the estate. At the time, she is married to a man, also rank and detestable, named Rex Matram, but she's taken up with Charles, and she intends to divorce Rex and to marry Charles. But Lord Marchman's reconciliation to the faith has a profound effect on her, and also the, the burden or the responsibility that she feels of coming into this more prominent position in the family house um, makes her second-guess her earlier decision. So she decides that she cannot enter a sinful marriage with Charles. And that's a, another beautiful passage in the book where she recognizes this and goes out to this, this fountain and she tells Charles, but is actually addressing sin that it cannot be. It's a kind of apostrophe to sin. And eventually, all of this love works through the family and comes to catch Charles himself. He's moved by Lord Marchman and he's confounded by Julia. And this whole story basically takes place during the years between the two wars. Lady Marchman dies in 1926. But in the Second World War, Charles is commissioned as an officer, and it comes to pass that he's quartered at Brideshead, thus the name of the book, Brideshead Revisited. And the private chapel that the family had worshipped in for much of its life had been closed after Lady Marchman's death, but it's reopened during the Second World War for the worship of the soldiers themselves. And so, in this very subtle but very beautiful resolution, it occurs to Charles that the efforts of the builders, the builders of that chapel, and by extension God's efforts, were not in vain, although their purposes may have appeared for a time to have been frustrated. So everything comes home here, and he, he concludes with this image of a sanctuary candle, that throughout all of it, God's love burns brightly, perhaps unacknowledged, perhaps obscured by sin and infidelity, but yet present. And so, Charles's friendship with Sebastian, his romantic love with Julia, his tortured relationship with the faith all eventuates in this crescendo of very simple praise 
adoration, and worship. So that for us kind of sets the groundwork for what we hope to do. So it's classic in the tradition to describe the difference and interconnection among loves. Love, which is one, we know, comes in various and interrelated expressions. The way it's normally mapped is to track the Greek words. So philia, friendship, eros, romance, and agape, divine love. The big work of the 20th century that that many have read and love and cherish is The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. It's very beautiful and very helpful. And it's also uh, really nice to read that in in conversation with two other works that he wrote at about the same time, Surprised by Joy and Till We Have Faces. So the one is expository, the one is autobiographical, and the other is fictional. But they tell a similar story of love interrelated. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas, on whose patronage we rely, uh, has his own distinct terminology. So he he does not write in Greek, he writes in Latin. And he refers to amor, which is love in its most basic or fundamental sense, A-M-O-R. And I'm sure you recognize that from its, you know, romance language equivalents. And then delexio is the kind of spiritual dimension of this simple love. And then amicizia is the word that we recognize as amicable or amicus namely friendship, and then finally he would get into to caritas, or charity. So what we're going to do is use that as a way to map the comments that follow, and we'll consider St. Thomas's exposition. So to begin, in this conference we'll just do love, that is amor, we'll do delexio, and then we'll do friendship. And then in the second conference we'll restrict ourselves almost exclusively to divine love and friendship. So, love. In St. Thomas's understanding, love is just the bedrock of appetite. Love is actually, for him, something that we share with the beasts. So it does not begin as something exalted. It's just very simple. It's something that comes of having a nature. The lover recognizes something out there as fitting or as pleasing, and that gives him a certain pleasure or joy. And we are such that we recognize what corresponds to our nature. So that's just, that almost goes without saying, but it's helpful to trot out at this point. So you see, you know, you're driving here. Um, I guess people don't drive here. Um, You're walking here. Accommodate my words to my audience. Um, You're you're walking here, and I don't know, are there Chick-fil-A's in Manhattan? That's great news. That's great news. Right? So you're walking here, and you pass by a Chick-fil-A, and you don't need it explained to you that there are good things in store, right? You're just moved spontaneously in love because you know that it's December. That means that there are seasonal milkshakes available and you can have a peppermint chocolate chip milkshake whenever you darn well please for at least the next 45 days, right? So like love is just that spontaneous movement towards something perceived as good. So before an object good for me, I love, right? Now, St. Thomas goes on to describe love as a kind of passion. When we think about passion, again, we imagine something that's very vehement, something that's very dramatic. I think perhaps of Dante's recounting in the Purgatory of the first proper circle, um, or excuse me, Dante's recounting in the, uh, the Inferno of his first proper encounter of a circle of hell, those lustful who have been condemned to those uh, nether pits. And he encounters Francesca and her, her 
amorous lover, and they're like literally being tossed about by hot winds. It's really striking because he has this sense that it should fit the crime, the punishment, that is. So we, when we think about passion, we think about these tortured lovers being tossed about by hot winds. But for, for St. Thomas, again, it's something yet more simple. We don't need to dramatize it. He calls it a passion just because it's something that we suffer. So passion in the sense of or I suffer. Something that registers in me and moves me. So you suffer something in your person, whether body or soul, and are moved as a result. Basically, all that we're saying is that some object in the exterior world touches me, impinges upon me, and it animates a response. So in St. Thomas's commentary on the ethics, he writes that love is a passion of the sensitive appetite, which by its impulse extends the soul with a kind of violence towards an enticing object. Okay? And the way that St. Thomas typically maps passions is this way. So we begin with love, and love begets desire, and desire fulfilled begets pleasure, or joy, or complacency. So too on the flip side, hatred begets aversion, begets sorrow in the presence of something hated. So because I love things, I will hate their opposites. So because I love good chicken, I will hate dry chicken, right? (laughs) And it will make me averse to that experience, and if I am forced to consume it, I will be sorrowful, right? So this is just the basic movement of appetite as St. Thomas understands it. Now, I'd put it to you that love, understood in this sense as a passion, uh, kind of creates within us an interior culture, So love takes up a kind of residence in our soul. It changes us in a way that's uh, distinct. What do I mean by this? Well, let's take a trivial example. We can start with chocolate chip cookies, right? So in my family home, chocolate chip cookies were a way of getting my father to do most things, you know? Um, So it was like, honey, the um, dishwasher doesn't work. And he'd be like, interesting. And then my mom would be like, I'll make you chocolate chip cookies. And he was like, I'm on it, you know? Um, but, but chocolate chip cookies was like a part of our family culture in a way that still marks me, you know? Like, when I see a plate of chocolate chip cookies, it like conjures this whole sense of hearth, home, delight, and deliciousness such that it's like, wow, these are, these are good, right? So like, I recognize them, I move towards them, that is to say, I desire them, and when I take that bite provided it's not like an oatmeal raisin cookie masquerading as a chocolate chipper, right? I experience joy. I experience pleasure. I experience complacency. But there's this whole kind of interior movement that's taken up in that sweep. Okay. So a more exalted example about how love kind of changes one interiorly, we'll take our cue from Dante. Many, many know that Dante had a kind of muse in his life, a woman who inspired him uh, to heights hitherto unseen. Her name is Beatrice, Beatrice. Dante met her for the first time when they were about nine years old. He later wrote of that experience. Mind you, she never spoke. They didn't exchange words in that first meeting. But afterwards he wrote this, Ecce Deus fortior me, qui veniens dominabitur mici. Literally, behold a God stronger than I, who coming shall rule over me. So he was so struck by the vision of this woman 
that it changed him, and he thought of her often. And he had the opportunity later, this is about nine, ten years later, when he was 18, to see her again. And at this point, they did have words. She greeted him. She literally just said, hello. That was it. And he didn't respond. <laughs> Except the quintessential, like, go, 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 go. Okay. Um, there followed that night a dream, which I will quote from La Vita Nuova. For there appeared to me in my room a mist of the color of fire, within the which I discerned the figure of a lord of terrible aspect. In his arms, it seemed to me that a person was sleeping, covered only with a crimson cloth, upon whom, looking very attentively, I knew that it was the lady of the salutation who had deigned the day before to greet me. And he who held her held also in his hand a thing that was burning in flames. And he said to me, Behold thy heart. But when he had remained with me a little while, I thought that he set himself to awaken her that slept. After the which, he made her to eat that thing which flamed in his hand. And she ate as one fearing. So he sees come into his room, clothed or somehow obscured in a crimson cloud, a lord of terrible aspect, who holds in his arms Beatrice, the lady of the salutation, and in his other hand Dante's own flaming heart, which, upon awaking Beatrice, he makes her to eat. Mind you, the day before she had said, Hello. (laughs) It's staggering. But we recognize the fact that love has that kind of power of changing us and animating us and moving us by an affinity that we have formerly never known and can only explain after the fact and then only stumblingly. You think about it. This inspires in Dante a revolutionary change. He entitles that book of poetry La Vita Nuova because he was literally living a new life, a life born of that love. Now, mind you, he married another woman with whom he had children and was tolerably happy. And Beatrice died at a young age, I think in her 20s. But this forever marked him. It inspires the sweet new style of Trecento, Italy. It inspires the the greatest poem in all of Christian history. It inspires, actually, the West in a way that many scholars now are beginning to appreciate. Apparently the reason that Italian is Italian is in part because of Dante and St. Catherine of Siena, because of their beautiful use of the Tuscan dialect that became attractive for other members of the surrounding regions. It, it affects Christendom. It affects us. I suspect many of you have had a profound engagement with the Divine Comedy. Everyone who gives talks about St. Thomas Aquinas has like often and regularly to fend off the desire to speak only of Dante. You know, it's like, well, St. Thomas said this, but this is the summa in verse, and now I will speak about Dante. You know, it's like, it's so seductive and good because it's true, and it's born of a love that changed a man. So, when we describe love, we're describing this bedrock of appetite, this passion. And we can see already here that passion has this spiritual dimension. So we're tending already to a spiritual love, and now we pass to the second of three. So that was amor, A-M-O-R. This is dilexio, D-I-L-E-C-T-I-O. And here we're just thinking about the spiritual resonances 
of love. Okay? And then we'll finally get to friendship. So, in St. Thomas's characterization of love, he speaks of two dimensions that are at work in an act of love. And he calls them love of concupiscence and love of friendship. Now here, I want to um, set aside a misconception. So concupiscence does not necessarily mean for St. Thomas something bad. So he uses it in the common acceptation of that most vehement effect of original sin. So you recall? Originally, man was made in a state of rectitude. So he found it easy to choose the good. But then he falls. And then there is a fourfold wound. So in our minds, we are touched by ignorance. In our wills, we are touched by malice. In our higher passions, we are touched by weakness. And in our lower passions, we are touched by concupiscence. So here, concupiscence describes that most um, noteworthy effect of the fall. Basically, the most instinctual desires in the human heart are those for food, drink, and sexual intercourse. Those things moderated by the virtue of temperance, those lower passions. And concupiscence is what inflames those lower passions such that they are no longer regulated by reason or, or prove unruly. Now, mind you, they're not wholly deprived of positive merit, but they do become, uh, I don't know, ill-sorted. So what concupiscence names in this sense, in this common acceptation, is the most peculiar feature of the fall, of original sin. And sometimes they're almost just used interchangeably. But what St. Thomas is describing here is just concupiscence as taken from the verb concupiscere, which just means to desire ardently. Okay? So concupiscence just means a desire. And sometimes he'll just refer to our desiring faculty as our concupiscible faculty. Right? So it just describes that simply. So it need not introduce the negative dimension. So St. Thomas describes that each act of love, this kind of spiritual act of love, has a twofold movement. One that he calls love of concupiscence, and the one that he calls love of friendship. Now, friendship does not bring us yet into the dimension of friendship properly so called. This is a, just a dimension of love, okay? So I'll just read from St. Thomas. This is from uh, his treatise on the passions. The movement of love has a twofold tendency toward the good that is the thing which a man wishes to someone, whether to himself or to another, and second, towards him to whom he wishes the good. Accordingly, man has love of concupiscence toward the good that he wishes to another, and love of friendship towards him to whom he wishes good. A little bit complex. We're going to map it. Okay. So you have a subject, and then you have an object, you know exactly what that is. And then you have another subject. Okay? So, he loves with love of concupiscence the thing, the good, the chocolate chip cookie. And he loves with love of friendship the person to whom he offers the chocolate chip cookie. This is one act of love. It regards the good under one aspect 
and the person to whom under another. Now, one more wrinkle. Subject and good. These are mini chocolate chips, okay? <laughs> you can also will that good for yourself. In this, you have love of concupiscence for the good and love of friendship for yourself, okay? So ultimately, you're loving the good for the person to whom. So you love the cookie, not because you love it in itself, but you love it for the person that they might have the transports that are attendant upon the consumption of a chocolate chip cookie, right? So too, you love the cookie, not simply because it is good to behold, it should be framed and put up on your first floor in a trophy case, but because you make it part of you with delight, okay? So two aspects of one love. So love of friendship is love in the most uh, full sense, love simpliciter, and love of concupiscence is love only after a manner, love secundum quid, because it is loved for another. So the love that I have for the good is for the other. So to break them out, we'll talk just briefly about love of concupiscence and then about love of friendship as these two dimensions of the self-same act of love. Basically, love of concupiscence bears on something that is insufficient for completing the love. Okay? So it would be a paltry existence to spend your days in the constant presence of cookies and none other, right? So cookies are not sufficient for completing you as a human person. They are incomplete for completing love or insufficient for completing love. You only reach them as good for another, whether for yourself or for someone else. So St. Thomas, again in his commentary on the Nicomachean Ethics, he says, I love bread and wine, not in themselves, but for eating and drinking, for me, for the subject for whom they are loved. That's a paraphrase. That's not his words. He doesn't speak in the first person. But one loves bread and wine, not in themselves, but for eating and drinking, because they are comestible and potable and therefore mine and can become me. So that's love of concupiscence. On the other hand, love of friendship bears on someone who is sufficient for completing the love. The subject whom we love and we'll describe this when we get to divine love, doesn't, doesn't essentially point beyond him or herself. They say, welcome, but they don't say, look beyond me, in the way that the chocolate chip cookie does. So they do not refer love further because the one loved is good in himself. To use Kantian language, they're incommunicable, right? They're not a means to some further thing. They're an end. So the relation is to the subject for whom the good is loved, even if the subject is myself. That's the ultimate horizon. That's the ultimate bearing. Now, <clears throat> I think this is helpful for ruling out what I think is a false characterization of love. We have it in our minds that love of concupiscence is selfish and love of friendship is altruistic. Okay? We want to break that up. Here, again, we are not so much describing a division of loves as of things loved in different modes, okay? Things loved in different ways. I'm going to quote from Cardinal Cajetan, 16th century Thomist, who is really excellent at unpacking St. Thomas. He says this, these things are always found together. For one and the same love is love of friendship with respect to the friend and love of concupiscence with respect to the good willed to him. So this is important. 
Sometimes when we approach friendship, we think, basically, this is good to the extent that I am pouring myself out and, and regard myself not in the least. But there is a third dimension. There is the good. Okay? And that has a kind of governing or regnant place in the conversation. Because what we're actually aiming for is not so much that when we get together, I want it to be that the conversation is only about you because then I'm being generous, you know? Or I want it to be the case that I hold every door for you and anticipate all of your needs and make it such that you never feel want or pain or twinge of anxiety. You know, like, it's not principally about the altruism in the sense that we understand it in like the 19th and 20th century. Rather, it's about being united in a good thing. And ultimately, those goods are established in a hierarchy. So the highest of friendship is trained on the highest of goods. And the best of friendship is that most steadfast communion in the good that abides. And we'll get to this when we talk about friendship properly so-called. But here we just want to kind of set aside that false characterization that when I want things for me, I'm being selfish. But when I want things for other people, then I'm being altruistic and a good friend. Stop it. Stop thinking about the endpoints. Think about the good. That has a governing place. Okay, so in so describing, I've introduced the prospect of friendship. So we're going to get then to our third and final love. And this is human friendship, where we, sub, where we see love really come to fruition. Okay, basically human friendship is just a rational love shared between two people. A rational love shared between two people. And St. Thomas has a really beautiful way of describing this, right? So for readers of the Summa, St. Thomas talks about charity, which is where we're getting ultimately and where he introduces the prospect of friendship. He introduces it in the second part of the second part. So the second part is his big book on morals. The first half is about principles, and the second half is principally about virtues. And in his treatise on charity, which goes from questions, goes questions 23 to 46, he starts with like five questions on charity kind of in itself. And then he does three questions on what he calls benevolence, to will the good of another. And then he does another three questions on beneficence, like almsgiving, fraternal correction. Benevolence, it's like peace, joy, mercy, the interior dimensions of love. And then beneficence are the exterior dimensions of love. So it's specifically beneficence, uh, fraternal correction, and alms deeds. Because for him, what, what love is, or what friendship is, as we're now describing it, is a mutual benevolence, that is to say also a beneficence, a willing good and a doing good that is reciprocated. And it entails communion, or what St. Thomas calls communicatio. So it involves a sharing of life. So it's not something that I wish in the abstract to one whom I have never met and stand no hope of meeting. Rather, it's premised on a common life. So like Aristotle just makes the basic um, observation that friendships tend to flourish when the people live close together. He takes this in a kind of political vein where he says that a happy polis is one that is built up by the friendship of the citizenry. That's actually the intrinsic common good of the city is its virtue, its concord, its tranquility of order, which is built on the backs of happy and beloved friends. So, there is this mutual benevolence, beneficence, willing good and doing good. It's built on a common life, cum communicazione. So, 
we can also identify it as, as two movements, and this is how Eleanor Stump describes it in her book, Wandering in Darkness. Um, she says it's the desire for the good of the beloved, benevolence, beneficence, and desire for union with the beloved. And there you pick up the dimension of communicatio or communion. Joseph Pieper writes this, When the true lover says, it is good that you exist, he wants to be one with the person whom he loves. He wants to be one with the person whom he loves. Now, friendship in the Aristotelian and Thomistic sense comes in a variety of forms, and those forms are based on the goods exchanged. Okay, so another moment here. All right, so there are goods that are useful. That's the bonum utile, sorry, I made them close. And there are goods that are delightful, bonum delectabile. And then there are goods that, in a certain sense, transcend both use and delight. <coughs> These, referred to in the Latin as honestum, which is infamously hard to translate. Most people <coughs> settle with beauty, nobility, grandeur, virtue, something along those lines. So basically, there are different friendships that congregate around different goods. So there are friendships of use. That's the kind of friendship that you have with your cashier at the Duane Reed. You know, like, I do this for you. You do this for me. I leave with my products. You take my currency. Then there's friendship of pleasure. Um, perhaps you are part of a croquet club that meets in Brooklyn. You know, you go out there um, in your sporting attire and you have a leisurely afternoon. Um, but you don't really see these guys otherwise, you know, uh, except to play croquet. That would be like a friendship of pleasure. You just go to disport yourself. But then bonum anestum, you know, a friendship centered on the bonum anestum is a virtuous friendship, a noble friendship, a kind of friendship that aspires to an integrity of life. You delight in each, in each other's presence. Um, most people, again, they think that this last one is about altruism, but it's not. It's not mere altruism. It transcends that. Rather, it's about a communion in a good that is transcendent, which goes beyond my use, goes beyond my pleasure, and is more so about the, the mutual exchange of life and love, you know, building up a virtuous citizenry, having a healthy worshiping community, having our eyes fixed on the horizon of our homing, things like that. Now, this communion in a good is such that I will the other's good as my own good. That is the most difficult thing that I will say all day because it's exceedingly difficult to put into practice. You can just think about it. Okay. Oftentimes, the good of others registers as a threat to or as in competition with my own good. For whatever reason, you know, because we're embodied spirits, we think about things often in material terms. So we assume that, that goods are scarce regardless of what they are whether they are candy in the candy jar at the doctor's office or water in the reservoir or the pension fund or whatever, you name it. Even goods that are commonly construed as common, we think of as scarce because when I cash out, I deplete it. And as a result, we kind of project into the zone of glory, fame, honor, virtue, sanctity, nearness to God. And we think that Sometimes if, if others are closer or better or more noble, then we are somehow threatened by that, in competition with them and suffer by comparison. But the real revolution of friendship is that I actually learn to rejoice in the good of another 
as my own good, not as an act of mental gymnastics, but because it is. Which is staggering. The sanctity of the saints is not a threat. It's an invitation and a positive, like, inspiration towards our own attending to sanctity. So in friendship, the, the, the kind of distance between me and you, well, it is dissipated a bit. We kind of run into each other, not as a way of losing our individuality, but because I am bound up in your good and you in mine. So you recognize in friendship one like unto me, but not as fitting for assimilation, but rather for communion. So this is like what Aristotle says um, means when he says that a friend is another self. Not in the sense that they are an extension of my own egotistical self. I will use them as I use a cashier. I will treat them as I treat my smartphone. No. No. Because I am actually in the beloved and the beloved in me by virtue of the union which friendship makes. So, I think we can appreciate this phenomenologically because there's a way that friendship actually increases our capacity for love, for desire, and for happiness. Or we could say love, desire, and pleasure. That little three-point thing that I described earlier. Here, another example taken from Dante. So in heaven, excuse me, this is actually in purgatory. There's this moment where a soul is loosed from a lower realm and comes up to a higher circle, a higher terrace. There's an earthquake And this is recounted to us in the later cantos. And the souls who see him coming up to their level do not say, here is a threat to me. Here is one who will distract God's attention from my purifying goals. Rather, what do they say? Here comes one who will augment my love. Here comes one who will augment my love. And so when you get to the end of the Paradiso, when you stand before the Empyrean heaven, the celestial rose... There is no mine and thine. There is only ours. Granted, you don't lose distinction of persons because you've already been through the moon and Mercury and Venus and the sun at Alia, right? But there is a sense that envy has been purged on the mount and we can actually enjoy a common good for each of us which registers as, as whole and entire, as lacking nothing or suffering no diminution. So... Friendship increases capacity for love, desire, and happiness. And just to end with a couple of literary examples. Perhaps you've read G.K. Chesterton's famous novel, The Man Who Was Thursday. If you haven't, I'd recommend reading it, and then turning back to page one, and then reading it again. (laughs) It's one of those vexing Chesterton books, like if you've ever tried Orthodoxy or The Everlasting Man, you read it, you're like, he said a lot of interesting things, and I have no idea what he said. (laughs) So The Man Who Was Thursday is a lot like that, but it has a way of working on you. So it tells the story of Gabriel Syme, who kind of wheedles his way into the high anarchist council of Europe. Now, he himself is an undercover policeman, so this is a very precarious position to adopt, to be in cahoots with six of the most dangerous bomb throwers in Europe. Now, what he comes to find, though, is that not all of them are anarchists. At least one, he finds initially, is a policeman who is also undercover. And what he comes to discover is that practically all of them are, okay, which is hilarious. Um, but, but upon finding one ally, Chesterton writes this. Through all this ordeal, his root horror had been isolation, and there are no words to express the abyss between isolation and having one ally. It may be conceded to the mathematicians that four is twice two, but two is not twice one. 
it is 2,000 times one. It's awesome. I mean, Chesterton has a kind of love for paradox with defies description. But what he is effectively saying is that the difference between one person doing something and two people doing something is marked. And I know this just from my experience of Dominican life. You have an idea, you try to bring it about, and it's kind of middling. And then you say, hey, Father Bonaventure, what about this idea? And he's like, that's good, let's improve it in this way. And also, let's have a great time, let's go to Dunkin' Donuts, let's get dark roast, and whatever their seasonal donut is, talk about it some more, come back, make an incredible poster, get a bunch of people there, and fist pumping will ensue. And you're like, great. (laughs) So what was a middling event becomes like, the thing of the semester, you know? This is Dominican life, so we're not like having jammers or like mixers or anything like that, but you know, still, it's quite exciting. <laughs> but, but like, that a friend is a force multiplier, and you're not just twice as good or twice as happy or twice as efficient, and actually those considerations pass away before just the joy of the friendship itself, which brings other people along in its sweep. Um, a final thought, this is taken from C.S. Lewis. He describes, and I'll just paraphrase because it's a long quotation, he describes, picture you're, you're one of three friends, and for whatever reason, you lose a friend. Perhaps he moves away, or perhaps he's estranged, or perhaps he dies, God forbid. But you might think initially that you'll have more of that remaining person's attention. You'll have more of him to yourself. But what you come to find, though, is that you have less of him. Because there were elements in that person's personality that only your lost friend could bring out. Only he could bring to the surface or animate. Because friends coax the good from each other. They bring out things in a particular way that would not otherwise be present. And this is, I think, where Aristotle begins in Book 8 of the Nicomachean Ethics. This is why he says, without friends, who could live? Because friends make life possible through communion in the good which transcends our own private or individual concerns and opens to us the prospect of something bigger and better and more beautiful and worth living. So with that, I'll stop and I'll have time for questions.